We love origin stories. Often called prequels in literature and entertainment, they look back. They, they tell the story of before, making the case for why a character is protagonist or antagonist. And it, it changes our understanding of them, most often illuminating something we didn't know before, something foundational and complex behind what made them who they are. My personal favorite origin story by far is the musical Wicked. And I um, had a particularly embarrassing moment. This doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but I feel like it'll tell you a little bit about who I am. This is my, my prequel. Um, when Lauren and I went and saw Wicked on Broadway, and we got to the end of the second half, or the end of the first half, just before the intermission. And you know, that, that pregnant half second of silence between fine and ovation. And because I, I hadn't breathed in the last minute and a half as this was happening, and yes, I'd also been crying, which, by the way, is one of the things that we coach our daughters-in-law on before they become daughters-in-law, is that wish art men cry. But because I hadn't breathed for the last minute and a half and had been crying, I audibly gasped. Only it didn't come out as a gasp. It came out as more of a, like a sup-suck. Do you know what that is? It's when you've been crying a lot and you can't catch your breath. In that half second, Everyone around me knew I was nothing more than a slack-jawed yokel. First time on Broadway, couldn't handle the emotion. And the people that we were with have not let me forget that moment in the last 10 years. But a good origin story means you can never see a person in the same way again. And it strikes me that today's gospel reading, the, what Steve just read, is hands down the best, the most compelling, and most important origin story ever written. Because it makes the case for why we take the life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus so seriously every other Sunday of the year when we gather, and hopefully every day of the year. And it perfectly sets the stage for the year to come. And in fact, it's John's intention that his readers never see Jesus in the same way again after reading this. Interestingly, John's gospel is never the focus of a particular year in the three-year lectionary cycle. Matthew is the focus of year A, year B is Mark, and it's easy to remember because they're in the order of the um, synoptic gospels. The gospel of Luke is year C. That's where we'll be primarily spending our time this year. We do, however, come to the gospel of John several times throughout the course of each year. And the whole gospel is read publicly over the course of three years. This passage, John 1, Verses 1 through 18 is read every single year on the first Sunday after Christmas. It's that important. 
The Gospel of John is a portrait of Jesus Christ and his saving work. Its, its emphasis is on the last three years of Jesus' life and especially on his death and resurrection. It never talks about Jesus' birth, but it does give us great insight into his origin. It's written not just to tell a story, but to help people believe in Christ as God incarnate. And in so doing, inherit eternal life. You know, the word incarnate comes from the word flesh. Like chili con carne is chili with meat. And that's where we get this word. Actually, that's where we get the word carne, but I digress. John states his purpose clearly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. But we shouldn't get the notion that the book is therefore primarily for unbelievers because Jesus himself said in chapter 15, verse 6, that believers must also abide in him. So when John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, he's writing to awaken faith in believers and unbelievers and, to, and, and, believer, and unbelievers and to sustain faith in believers. And in that way, to lead both to eternal life. John, as an eyewitness, was part of these infinitely important events. Five times in this gospel, we find the, the heartwarming, if not humorous, self-referential words, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as if we didn't know. Not very subtle, John. By the way, Whoever put the letter B in the word subtle deserves a serious pat on the back. Jesus chose his apostles, John being one, as his representatives. He was with them, taught them, sent them, and gave them through the Holy Spirit divine guidance in the writing of scripture for the foundation of the church, it says in Ephesians 2.20. We believe that John's gospel is therefore the inspired word of God. And those words of God, those, those words, word of God, bring us to the first words of John's gospel. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made was made that was made. So first, we should pay attention to the word, word. In the beginning was the word. The most, I, I wanted to go word like I was hip, but it did not work at all that way. <laughs> word. He was the word. The most important thing to know about this word is found in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word refers to Jesus. This is a book about the life and work of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, the man that John knew and saw and heard 
and touched with his hands, he says in 1 John 1.1. He had flesh and blood. He was not a ghost or an apparition, appearing and vanishing. He ate and drank and got tired, and John knew him intimately. So close was their relationship that we're told in chapter 19, verse 26, (coughs) that Jesus' mother, Mary, lived with John during the last part of her life. (coughs) And what John's doing in verses 1 through 3 is telling us the most ultimate things about Jesus that he possibly can. It may have taken John more than three years to figure out the fullness of who Jesus was, but he doesn't want his readers to take more than two sentences to find out what took him so long to know. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of his gospel the eternal majesty and deity and creator rights of Jesus Christ. That's the point of verses 1 through 3. He means for us to read this gospel awestruck that the man at the wedding and at the well and on the mountain is also the creator of the universe. This is the structure of the book. This is the way John wrote, the way God meant for him to put it together. John is saying from the first words, I want to blow your mind with the origin and identity of this one who became flesh and dwelt among us, so that there is no ambiguity, no mistaking, no misunderstanding. John means for us to read every word of this gospel with the clear knowledge that Jesus Christ was with God and was God, and that the one who humbly and willingly laid down his life for sinners, we're told in verse, chapter 15, verse 13, is the one who created the universe. But why did he choose to call Jesus the Word? I believe John calls Jesus the Word because he had come to see the teaching of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that that Jesus himself, in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising, was the final and decisive message or word of God. John tells us in chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus came to witness to the truth, and in chapter 14, verse 6, that he was the truth. Both his witness and his person were the word of truth. He said in chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And he said in chapter 15, verse 7, abide in me. When we abide in him, we are abiding in the word. He said twice in chapter 5, 36 and 10, chapter 10, verse 25, that his works were a witness about him. So in his working, he was the word. In Revelation 19, 13, which was also written by John, he describes Jesus' return this way. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Two verses later in Revelation 19, 19 chapter 15, John says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, a metaphorical way of saying Jesus judges the nations by the power of the word that he speaks. The sword of the spirit, it's called in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. 
But the power of his word is so united with Jesus himself that John says that he doesn't have the sword of God's word coming out of his mouth, but he is the word of God. But he doesn't just have the sword of God's word coming out of his mouth. So as John begins his gospel, he has in view all the revelation, all the truth, all the witness, all the glory, all the light, all the words that came out of Jesus in his living and teaching and dying and rising. And he sums up all that revelation with the name. He is the word. The first, final, ultimate, decisive, and absolutely true and reliable word of God. Jesus, God incarnate, is God's climactic and decisive word to the world. So beyond that, what does John want us to know about the word? He reveals at least four specific things about him. The time of his existence, the essence of his identity, his relationship to God, and his relationship to the world. First, the time of his existence. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The words in the beginning are identical in Greek to the first two words of the Greek Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not an accident. Because the first thing John is going to tell us about what Jesus did is that he created the universe. That's what he says in verse 3. So the words in the beginning mean before there was any created matter, there was the word, the son of God. John begins his gospel by locating Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, in relation to time, namely, before time. He is eternally pre-existent. Jude acknowledges in this reality, in his, this reality, in his great doxology, Jude verse 25, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God gave us grace in Christ before the times of the ages. So before there was any time or any matter, there was the word, Jesus Christ. Secondly, John wants us to know the essence of his identity. Verse 1 at the end, the word was God. One of the distinctive marks of this gospel is that the weightiest theology is often delivered in the fewest and simplest words. This could not get simpler and it could not get weightier. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, was and is God. And we join all true Christian churches around the world in worshiping Jesus Christ as God. We fall down with Thomas in John 20, verse 28, and confess with joy and wonder, my Lord and my God. When we hear the Jewish leaders say in John 10, 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, blasphemy, because you being man, make yourself God. We join all of Orthodox Christianity throughout history in insisting, no, it isn't blasphemy. It's simply a statement about who he is. Our Savior, our Lord. 
our God. So thirdly, Jesus' relationship to God. Verse 1, in the middle of the verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the heart of the central and historic doctrine and mystery of the Trinity. The word Jesus Christ was with God and he was God. He is God and he has a relationship with God. He is God and he is the image of God, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing eternally as the fullness of the deity in a distinct person. There is one divine essence in three persons two of them are mentioned here the father and the son we get to see the holy spirit at jesus's baptism just a few verses after this passage and since in first corinthians 13 9 and 12 we see in a mirror dimly and we know only in partial ways we shouldn't be too surprised that this remains a pretty big mystery to us but we mustn't throw it away simply because it's incomprehensible in the words of Athanasius. It's too important for that. If Jesus Christ is not God, he could not accomplish your salvation, it says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And his glory would not be sufficient to satisfy your eternal and God-given longing for new discoveries of beauty. To throw away the deity of Jesus Christ is to throw away one's soul and with it the joy of the age to come where we will join him in reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. The absolute importance of the deity of Jesus cannot be overstated. So we've seen the time of his existence, i.e. before all time, eternally pre-existent. The essence of his identity, the word was God, and his relationship to God. The word was with God. Finally, Jesus' relationship to the world. Verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us taught us, healed us, rebuked us, protected us, loved us, and died for us. And he also created the universe. We must retain the mystery of the Trinity from verse 1 and not leave it when we get to verse 3. All things were made through him. Yes, there was another acting through the word in creation. God was. But the word is God. He was the father's agent or word in the creation of all things. But in doing it, he was also God. God, the word, created the world. Your savior your Lord, your friend. Jesus is your maker. Arianism, the fourth century heresy, and some prominent world religions and quote-unquote Christian cults today insist that Jesus was not God, was not eternal, not eternally begotten, but rather Jesus was created. He was the first of creation, the highest of all the angels, or as Arians said it, there was when he was not. But John has written verse 3 precisely in a way that makes that impossible. He didn't just say all things were made through him because someone could conceivably say, as Arius did, yeah, but all things don't include himself. It includes everything but himself. 
So he was created by the Father, but when the Father, when the Father, Jesus created, with the Father, Jesus created all other things. But John didn't leave it at that. He said, in addition, in the last part of verse 3, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, stick with me here for just a second. What do the final words that was made add to the meaning of without him not anything was made? Without him was not anything made that was made. Simply this, and I say simply kind of tongue-in-cheek. They make explicit the emphatic and crystal clear that anything in the category of made, Christ made it. Therefore, Christ was not made. Because if you do not exist, you cannot bring yourself into being. Christ was not made. That is what it means to be God. And the word was God. And yes, I am aware that that is 10 pounds of theology in a 5-pound bag. But this origin story in the first few, few verses of the Gospel of John sets the table for every week of Gospel readings to come, every reading to come in this year. Simply put, they answer the, the why question. Why? Why we see the words of Jesus as the very words of God and treat them as such. Was Jesus a rabbi? Yeah. Was he a prophet? Yes. Was he a great ethical teacher? Of course. His words are the greatest body of ethical teaching in human history. Was he healer and restorer and forgiver? Yes, yes, yes. But John wants us to know and believe today from the first words of his gospel that before and above any of these categories, any of those things, he was and is God. And this is the one who, in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form for us and for our salvation. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how much he loves us. You know what? There is nothing we can do to make him love us more. And there is nothing, nothing that we can do to make him love us less. He loves us perfectly right now in this moment. Think about that. You are perfectly loved right now. And we're going to spiritually and tactfully experience that love again today as we gather entirely at his invitation at this table. And I'm really glad we're here for that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.